0: Good morning, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 11. In the last few months I've been talking a lot about Mark chapters 8 through 10 and maybe someone wondered what comes after chapter 10. Someone asked me that and I said chapter 11. We're just, we're just trekking on. Um, now, it, it's a, it's a little interesting to be reflecting on the passage that's that's referred to as the triumphal entry passage off season. You know, this is the sort of passage that is regularly read and sometimes preached on Palm Sunday. Um, but we're but we're going through uh, the Gospel of Mark, and it's really helpful to see the passage in context. And if you just had verses 1 through 10 in front of you, you you might think, well, this is a, a wonderful, triumphant entry of the king into the holy city, and yet we're going to go through verse 25, really fits together as a, as a unit. And what we'll realize is, is that the entry wasn't as, as triumphant as, as the, the phrase would lead you to think. And actually, Jesus has come on holy business to confront the unfruitfulness of Israel. So I'm going to go ahead and read uh, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 25. Holy Scripture says... And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is the Word of God, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, as we come before Your word, we pray that you would remove all bitterness and unforgiveness from our hearts, because if it is present in our hearts, it will interfere with our fellowship with you. It will undermine our capacity to experience your transforming power in our lives. So I pray that as we come together before your word, that our hearts would be united toward one another in grace and mercy and love and patience, so that we can hear and be transformed by what you are saying. Father, speak to us and build us up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to walk through this passage in in four parts, and before too long, I'm going to attempt to show you how how these four parts fit together and that helps us to understand what's going on here but let's begin part 1 verses 1 through 11 Jesus enters Jerusalem and inspects the temple as as you know Jesus has been journeying to Jerusalem he's been going from the north to the south he was in Jericho at the end of chapter 10 which is about 15 to 20 miles from Jerusalem. Now they're in Bethphage and Bethany, just a couple miles from Jerusalem, and onward they go. Jesus enters Jerusalem as the one who is in charge. Right? He he takes charge. He makes arrangements for the cult that he will ride on into the holy city. He gives his he gives uh, his disciples instructions about what to do, and it, it happens just as he tells them it will happen. Jesus is Lord, even, even in this entry into Jerusalem. In verses 8 through 10, Jesus is honored. You get, you get the idea of this beautiful procession, this celebration, this festivity as they lay down leafy branches before the Lord as he, as he enters in, and they're And they're singing shouts of praise and blessing, Hosanna. Hosanna literally means save, I pray, and it's a prayer for salvation. And yet the term had actually become a term that just indicates praise, praise to God. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They are, they are celebrating, they are anticipating. And Jesus, in entering the holy city on a cult, is actually fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. He's actually announcing in, in a subtle way, if you didn't have eyes to see it, He's announcing in a subtle way that he is the king who has come to save his people. It says in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 10, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus is announcing that he is the promised king. He is the righteous king of Israel who would establish a kingdom of peace for all peoples and all nations. It is doubtful that, that many people understood what was really going on. They may, as we've talked about before, they, they, were, they were looking for a more political and military salvation from the enemy of Rome. They didn't really understand that Jesus had come to lay down his life as a sacrifice for sin. But nevertheless, they are celebrating his entry as the Messiah into Jerusalem. But notice how the celebration is short-lived. This this triumphal entry has been described as very anticlimactic, and indeed it is. Because even though there's all this fanfare, once Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, it all seems to just dissipate. And Jesus goes to, goes to the temple, and there's no great celebration or praise that takes place on his account in the temple. He seems a man alone. Perhaps the twelve are with him in verse 11. It says, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, Jesus came as the inspector. He came to investigate what was going on in his father's house. And it's at this point that I want to show you how the passage fits together. Because when you understand how the passage fits together... It it helps you understand what's going on, and it also helps you appreciate why we should read all these 25 verses together. So in verse 11, Jesus inspects the temple. In verses 12 through 14, Jesus inspects and judges a fig tree. In verses 15 through 19, Jesus judges the temple. Do you see a pattern there? He inspects the temple, he inspects and judges the fig tree, and then he judges the temple, which is an indicator to us that the uh, the inspection and judging of the fig tree is a symbolic representation of what he's doing to the temple. And furthermore, If you go to verse 20, what happened to that fig tree which he pronounced a curse upon? It withered away to its roots. He inspected and judged a fig tree, and it was totally destroyed. Likewise, he is inspecting and judging the temple, and it will be totally destroyed. That's that's what's going on in this passage. And then there is some wonderful, beautiful application for us that comes at the end. So let's go to verses 12 through 14. Jesus inspects and judges the fig tree. He's walking along and he's hungry. The, the, the fact that he is physical, physically hungry is just background. This is not Jesus being vindictive because I was hungry and this tree didn't meet my needs and so curse you, tree. That, that's, that's, not, that's not what's going on here. It's just a window into this deeper lesson that he is trying to teach his disciples and that he's trying to teach us because it was written down for our instruction and benefit. But being hungry, desiring fruit, he goes to this fig tree, he sees that it's leafy as as leaves, and uh, many have pointed out, I thought this was very helpful because I hadn't thought of this myself, is that the the fig tree from a distance looks alive. It looks alive because it has leaves on it. But when he got close and inspected it, in all reality, the tree was shown to be unfruitful. Now, Mark tells us that it was not the season for figs. But remember, this really isn't about the fruitfulness of the fig tree. This is about the fruitfulness of the temple. There are seasons when there are there is fruit on trees but when it comes to god's people and god's house they should always be fruitful and so he so he noticed that it was unfruitful though it looked alive it looked impressive the actual substance of it was empty and unfruitful and that led him to pronounce a judgment a curse upon the tree in verse 14 may no one ever eat fruit from you again and that is what's going to happen to the temple now let's go to part three verses 15 to 19 where jesus judges the temple says they came to jerusalem and he entered the temple by the way this temple was a huge complex and most people think that that The part of the temple that he entered into to do what he's about to do is a place called the Court of the Gentiles, which is a whopping 35 acres. So it's a a pretty big patch of earth. And this this was a place where the Gentiles could come and worship the God of Israel. And what did Jesus see? He sees that it had become commercialized. says in verse 15, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, it's not as if the sacrificial system, where they sacrificed animals to the Lord, or the temple tax, where they received taxes in order to fund the the, the temple system. It's not as if those were inherently wrong, but Jesus sees in these activities which had been moved into the court of the Gentiles that their priorities had been completely flipped. Instead of focusing on the temple as a place of meeting with God, as a place of worship, as a place of welcoming all kinds of people, including Gentiles and foreigners, into into the the temple so that they can engage with the Lord, they had lost sight of that. And it had become all about the temple system, the temple institution, the temple bureaucracy. And Jesus quotes from the Old Testament in Isaiah. says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Remember what we read from Zechariah chapter 9 that the, the king of Israel would speak peace to the nations. And in Isaiah 56, God said, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. And yet, they were, they were not welcoming the Gentiles. They were not allowing the foreigners to come and meet the God of Israel. And so Jesus recognized that this is a temple that has lost its purpose and then he says at the end of verse 17, you have made it a den of robbers. That phrase, den of robbers, comes out of Jeremiah chapter 7. And it's very interesting if you look at the context of Jeremiah chapter 7. Because in Jeremiah chapter 7, the people were depending on the temple. They thought their relationship to the temple guaranteed their Security and preservation as God's people. And yet if you read through Jeremiah 7, what it says there is, no, 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 no. Your lives are completely out of step with the character and the ways of God. And I am going to come, God says, I'm going to come, and I am going to do to your temple what I did to the house of Shiloh. I'm going to destroy it. That was several hundred years ago. Now Jesus realizes this this same thing is happening again. God's people have turned away, specifically the leadership. They have turned away from their true calling, and now they are under the judgment of God. Now, the religious leaders were not thrilled at Jesus' censure, verse 18, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. They were seeking a way to destroy him because they feared him. In other words, they couldn't just arrest him on the spot and destroy him straight away because that would not have gone over well with the people. Because the people were hanging on his words and they were enjoying his teaching. He was very popular with the ordinary folks. And so, so the religious leaders had to plot and scheme as to how they would succeed at taking Jesus down notice the implication of verse 14 when Jesus said may no one ever eat fruit from you again remember the fig tree really represents the temple and what Jesus is saying is is that this this temple is going to be destroyed and it will. this physical temple in Jerusalem will never be a place of fruitfulness ever again. Their time is up. Another day, another day goes by, and we come to verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed Has withered. Before before I get into Jesus' answer, let me just give you my summary of, of part four. Part four is Jesus instructs his disciples to be God's house of prayer. Something really pivotal is happening in the plan of God. And actually, when we get to Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, we're going to see this even more clearly. In fact, if you have Mark 12 in front of you, look at verse 9. It says in verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? God's kingdom likened to a vineyard, and its stewardship had been given to these tenants representing the jewish religious leaders who want to destroy jesus and what does it say the owner will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others okay that, that's what's happening in our passage in chapter 11 what's happening in is is that god's house in, 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 the, the physical temple in jerusalem god's house is going to be destroyed, but God is going to establish and raise up another house, a true house of prayer, and that comes out in verses 22 to 25. So this this fig tree has withered to its roots because Jesus cursed it, he judged it, and Peter calls attention to this, and this is Jesus' answer have faith in God. Why, why was the temple under judgment? Why was Israel so unfruitful and the heart of Israel was the city of Jerusalem and the heart of Jerusalem was the temple? Why were they so unfruitful? Because they didn't trust the Lord. God, God's people stand by faith trusting him or they don't stand at all and we know that when when the bible talks about having faith in god it's not talking about some vague hope and some transcendent force or power we're talking about the personal god who is revealed in scripture the personal god who is revealed in and through the lord jesus christ And so having faith in God means having faith in God's word and having faith in God's promises and having faith in God's character and having faith in God's ways and having faith in God's plan. And God has a plan here to destroy the temple and to raise another one in its place. And so we need to be trusting God to do his work in and through our lives now let's move to verse 23 verse 22 told us to have faith in God verse 23 tells us I think to believe and declare God's earth-shattering gospel now verse 23 is a very difficult verse to understand and let me tell you a little bit about how I handle difficult verses I try not to freak out. Most of the Bible, thankfully, is is very clear. If we we pay attention to it, if we're in fellowship with the Lord, his spirit is at work in our lives, and we pay attention to what is written in context, most of the Bible is clear to understand. But the the Apostle Peter said concerning the writings of Paul that there were in them some things difficult to understand and then he said, which the unstable twist to their own destruction. So we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be intimidated when we come to a verse that is difficult to understand, and yet we, we should proceed cautiously because we don't want to twist it. We don't want to misuse it. The overall, the overall passage, the overall context, verses 1 to 25, is pretty clear, and that's helpful. The the understanding of all 25 verses doesn't hang on what you do with verse 23. But verse 23 is a challenging verse. It says, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. What what does that mean? What is it talking about? It seems like a lot of people just, just take verse 23 as kind of a, a metaphorical segue into verse 24, and the real point is about prayer. Mountain-moving faith, mountain-moving prayer, and we're really not supposed to speak to mountains. Other, other people uh, might, m- might go in a different direction, and, and now all of a sudden, every one of your personal problems or trials is a mountain, and you need to speak to your problems. I don't I don't think I don't think that that's the right track uh, either. So I'm gonna tell you what I think. Like I said, this is a difficult verse. I, I hold this with an open hand. I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be offended if you look at it a different way, or I wouldn't be surprised if in two years I look at it in a different way, but I'm just gonna do my best with with what is before me right now. So Jesus says, whoever says to this mountain, this mountain. What, what, what are they talking about in chapter 11? He's talking about the temple. The fig tree represents the temple, and it makes sense to me that he would continue this theme of talking about the temple, the temple mount, the hill where God's temple was located. And so I think this mountain is actually a reference to the physical temple in Jerusalem that is about to be destroyed in the year 70 AD, about 40 years from the time of these events. And so this becomes a very important word to those apostles and to those first generation of disciples because they were were Jews and the temple was a big deal for them. It was a big deal for their faith in the Lord. And he says, whoever says to this mountain, whoever says to this temple, be taken up and thrown into the sea, that, do you remember back in chapter 9, Jesus said that it would be better for you to be, have a millstone around your neck and be thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of his little ones to stumble? It's the the language of judgment and the language of destruction. We're talking about the destruction of a mountain that stands for the temple. And I think what he's saying to his apostles and to that first generation of disciples is, listen, you're going to have to believe and speak some very difficult things for the next 40 years. Because... The temple is under judgment, and yet the temple will stand until the Romans destroy it 40 years from now. And yet, you're going to have to think and believe and speak in the kind of way that says life is not found in the temple, the physical temple. Reconciliation with God is not found in, in and through the physical temple. The sacrifices in the temple do not suffice to make one right with God. The temple, the temple system, the temple sacrifices, they are not the answer. There is one sacrifice that makes one right with God. The sacrifice of the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who gave His life as a ransom for many. There is one cornerstone Of a new temple that God is building. Back to Mark chapter 12, the stone, uh, chapter 12, verse 10, second half of it, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. God is building something new, a new temple, a spiritual temple, and the Lord Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. And you're going to have to speak this kind of a way. You're going to have to say, to the church, to the people, to believers, not to a place, but to people who are scattered all over the Mediterranean world, you're going to have to tell them, you are God's building. You are God's temple. You have access to God through Christ. Earthly Jerusalem is in bondage. It is the heavenly Jerusalem that matters. The temple and the temple system and the temple sacrifices are obsolete. You're going to have to speak like Paul does in 1 Thessalonians. God's wrath has come upon the unbelieving Jews who opposed Jesus and his apostles and who hinder the spread of the gospel. You're going to have to believe that and speak that and be confident that it will come to pass. You're going to have to build your life on it. Because read the book of Hebrews. If you go back and try to build your life on what's happening in the physical temple, you have no share in Christ. You've got to break from the temple. You've got to believe and speak and understand that it will be destroyed. And God's locus of saving presence is no longer taking place through that temple, but through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the true temple. And we who believe in Christ are being built up as a holy temple, a spiritual building in the Lord. This is the way the New Testament speaks. So that's why I say that verse 23 tells us to believe and declare God's earth shattering gospel and build your life upon it so that when 70 a.d. comes and the temple is turned over and every stone is on the ground your faith is not shattered because your faith is in god because your faith in what is what god your faith is in what god has done through the lord jesus christ and you my people are the true temple now that takes us to verse 24 Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. See, what's going on here is God's physical house that should have been a house of prayer that's going to be destroyed, that's gone. And what's coming into view is a believing people, a believing community that is God's true and fruitful house of prayer. When Solomon prayed that wonderful prayer at the dedication of the temple in the book of 1 Kings, he kept saying over and over again, if your people pray to you toward the temple, toward the temple, that temple representing the presence of God and the promises of God and the mercy of God. And what Jesus is teaching us here is that you will pray. But you will no longer pray toward the temple now you will pray in and through me because of your relationship with me and we are to be a people of prayer we are to pray for big things for the progress of the gospel for the salvation of sinners for the building up of the church into a holy people for boldness and courage in proclaiming the gospel and making new disciples and we must always remember that God's fruitful house of prayer is supposed to be for all the nations. We, 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 we don't want to be like the disciples and others were shown to be where they kind of had this, this exclusive club mindset or they wanted to keep the children away. We should always be looking beyond our current borders, the borders of our church family. We want to we want to reach more and more people. We don't want to get settled into this exclusive club where we have forgotten that we are on mission to shine the light of Jesus Christ into our community and into our world. Finally, we come to verse 25. Last week, we learned that selfish ambition can derail our participation in Jesus' mission. And here we learn that unforgiveness, bitterness, unresolved broken relationships can derail our participation in Jesus' mission. Whenever you stand praying, forgive, Jesus says, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. There's, there's this interesting flow of thought in the New Testament that on the one hand, we forgive because we have been forgiven. Right? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The Father forgives us, we forgive one another. But Jesus also teaches on multiple occasions that our ongoing fellowship with god depends on in part depends on in part our willingness to take his forgiveness and take his mercy and to take his grace and share that with others so that we don't harbor resentment we don't harbor unforgiveness and so when you get right down to it the the powerful working of God in and through His people is not dependent on us being incredibly smart, incredibly gifted, incredibly insightful. The, the promise of God's powerful working in and through His people, it comes down to something very practical. Love one another. The Father has loved us we love one another one of the most important ways to one to love one another is to forgive one another if anyone has done anything to sin against you or to rub you the wrong way and so what we see we have faith in a big god who is with his people we believe and declare a big gospel we offer big prayers expecting them to be answered not necessarily right this minute i was asking a, I was asking a fellow pastor about verse 24 and he said don't forget time time jesus said believe that you have received it and it will be yours but he didn't say it will be yours in one second might be a second might be a minute might be a season might be a long season Keep praying, believing that what God has promised you He will give. Persevering prayer. A big God, a big gospel, big prayers, and big mercy. I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 67. And we're gonna close here. Psalm 67. And I'm gonna ask you to I'm gonna ask you to stand. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ has not called us to live under his curse. And yet his his curse is upon those who do not believe. He has called us to live under his blessing. And we want the blessing of the Lord upon us for the sake of mission. And so let's let's conclude our reflection with Psalm 67. May God... Be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would pour out Your abundant blessing upon us, that we might know You all the more, that we might continue to taste and see that you are good, to believe and be strengthened by your promises, that you would continue to, to sanctify us, and lead us in holiness and obedience and love and mercy. Father, we pray that South Paris Baptist Church would be one little but fruitful expression your house, your temple, with the message of Jesus going forth to the nations, drawing more and more people in. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, go and live in the blessing and peace and strength of your Lord. Amen.